All right, well, would you pray with me this morning as we get into God's Word and study together? Heavenly Father, we're grateful to be gathered together as the body of Christ today. We thank you for this church. We thank you that it is a, it's a worshiping church, it's a sending church, and it's a giving church. We thank you for all of these ways in which we've worshiped today and glorified you. Lord, now as you feed us with the Scripture, we pray that every need of every person here today would be met. We thank you that you promise us that your word would go forth and it would accomplish everything you intend for it. So we claim that today. We ask that the anointing of the Holy Spirit would help me as I communicate it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, this morning I'm going to minister on the important subject of what happens when God's people pray. What happens when God's people pray? pray. So would you turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Acts chapter 12. That's where we're going to take our message from this morning, Acts chapter 12, and your devices or your Bibles, and we'll begin on verse 1 in just a moment. Uh, I'm sure some of you are too young to remember this, but there used to be a television series uh, called Touched by an Angel. Okay, some of you are as old as I am. All right. <laughs> it actually was a series that began and was produced from uh, 1994, and I think it concluded about in 2003. There was 211 episodes, and there were dramatic stories of people's lives where God intervened through sending angel or angels to do something. And uh, it was actually a, a, a clean and inspiring series. And uh, Christians went crazy during that time. Like, oh, isn't it so cool? We got to see a show with angels. Well, anyway, this morning, my news for you is the story that we're going to look at, Acts chapter 12, is better, more dramatic, more supernatural than any of the episodes that you saw that weren't necessarily true. So this one is true. And in this one, uh, we see a dramatic role played by Peter as he is placed in prison and then dramatically released by the Lord. This is a message this morning that emphasizes the power of prayer. This is a message this morning that will remind you that no matter what comes against the people of God, God always has a plan. We're going to discover again that the powers of death and hell cannot prevail against Christ's church. Why? Because it is securely built on the rock of Jesus Christ. Amen? So you have your Bibles while you're holding your place there at Acts chapter 2. Let me give you a couple of quotables. Uh, Angus Buchan said, there is power in prayer. That's a good statement right there, right? There is power in prayer. When men work, they work. But when men pray, God works. Now, how about you? But I don't mind working, but I'd rather God do the working. Amen? There's another wonderful quote by Oswald Chambers that says this, Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. We live in an interesting hour. We live in a day in which there's never been better technology available for the church. We have better curriculum. We have better training. We have uh, better buildings. We have more resources. We have more books and, the and theology and seminaries and everything imaginable to make the church successful. And yet prayer seems to be at a low point. 
I think there's been a tendency for people to put their reliance on marketing and programming and this and that rather than the power of true prayer. And so I advocate to you this morning, and I think the Word of God will back me up, that we need to rediscover about what happens when people really get serious about praying. Amen? All right, so we're going to look at Acts chapter 12. Uh, I have on the slides here for you, and those of you online, uh, you can turn in your Bibles as well. But these are the first five verses, and then I'm going to continue to read through verse 16. So listen carefully. Pay attention to the nuances of the, of the drama and the, and the uh, story and the narrative here, and then we'll break it down for you, all right? Everybody ready? Here we go. In chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. How about everybody say Herod? Herod. All right, King Herod is the bad guy here. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval from the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison. Everybody say prison handing him over to, the, to be guarded <clears throat> pardon me, by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Verse 5, very, very important, the most important verse this morning. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. I'll say it again. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared. Everybody say suddenly. Isn't it interesting the number of times the Bible says suddenly? Things happen suddenly sometimes. Amen? Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrist. Everybody agree this is already supernatural, isn't it? Here we, we're not done yet. Then the angel said to him, well, put on your clothes and sandals. Peter did so. He said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second set of guards, and they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. And they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And verse 11, and then Peter came to himself and he said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel 
and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Everybody say praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without even opening it and exclaimed to the group, Peter's at the door. Peter's at the door. And they said what? You've lost it, girl. You are out of your mind. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were all astonished. Wow, have you agree that's better than any Touched by an Angel episode? You agree with that? We might want to rename this Touched by an Angel because clearly an angel of the Lord went to visit Peter in prison. Amen? But my focus isn't so much on the angel as it is on verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Can I get you before I go on and give you kind of an outline that will help hold this story together? Just circle, if you're able to, two words in verse 5. Circle the word so and circle the word but. Because those are very important words. So, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for him. Now, if you take these 16 verses, there's really four developments in the story. And these are developments that literally would change that church. And it would change the world forever how God intervened due to their prayers. So let's look at them, and I'll overview them, and then we're going to focus on one of them. First development is what I would just call the church in crisis. We're going to see that this church is in the midst of a crisis. Number two, the church prayed. Number three, circumstances changed. Number four, the church was surprised. That's a pretty cool surprise, amen? All right, so let's look at each of these, and we'll focus, of course, on number two. Number one, the church was in a crisis. So what was the crisis? Well, we read about it in the first four verses, and it says it was about this time that King Herod had arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. So we know that for a number of years, the church of Jesus Christ, primarily Jews, at this point had, been, had come together, had been birthed, and began to grow in Jerusalem. There were still, of course, many people who were Jews. Then you had, of course, the Romans who were there as well. But the church had grown, and King Herod decided it was time to arrest more of these Christians. Now, the Jews who were there... Were, uh, they were kind of on the side of King Herod in this regard, and they were glad, they were delighted that King Herod was ready to arrest them. So they were in a season of persecution. Actually, this church had been persecuted for many years now. It was 
It was birthed in prayer, but persecution set in soon. Immediately after Acts chapter 3, when Peter and John did a miracle, immediately the scripture tells us that Peter and John were called before the Sanhedrin. We know that the, in Acts chapter 4, the church prayed again and God heard their prayer. It wasn't long after that that persecution, both famine and then even a persecution in Acts chapter 8, scattered all the believers out of Jerusalem and sent them to the surrounding areas. So this is a church that was familiar with persecution. We know that Stephen was martyred, one of their leaders. Here we see it says that they had uh, Herod had arrested some of the church, and he had James, who was one of the leaders, James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. So folks, these were serious times. Persecution was threatening the very lives of the church members and particularly focused upon the leaders. So who was this Herod? You may recognize that it seems like every time you turn to some other chapter in the New Testament, another Herod is popping up, right? So you get all the, it's easy to get all the Herods mixed up. So just for simplicity, know that this is Herod Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa, and he is the grandson of Herod the Great, who had all the babies killed uh, you know, with the birth of Jesus back in Bethlehem, right? You remember that. So he's the grandson. Now he is a little bit of a unique king in that he was ruthless, he was mean, he wasn't as bad as his grandfather, but he was uh, what I would just call the ultimate pol politician because all he was about was getting popular support for his decisions and what he would do. So he would do anything if it meant, if it meant getting a few more uh, people to, to, uh, to compliment him or to be on his side. He was always grandstanding. He was basically a people pleaser. His approval ratings had skyrocketed when he had arrested James and now Peter. And so his plan was, I'm going to arrest Peter, we're going to put him in prison, make sure he doesn't get away. And then at the end of the Jewish festival, we're going to kill him. Why at the end of the festival? Because there would be thousands more Jews that would be in the city at that time. And he wanted once again to do it to please them. He had targeted Peter, one of the most influential leaders in the church, and placed him in prison. What condition was he in? It was crisis all over. He knew that Peter had a reputation for escaping from prison, which he had done in Acts chapter 5. He said, well, it ain't going to happen this time. They stuck him in the deepest, darkest part of the dungeon in prison, made sure that there were plenty of soldiers around him. Typically, they would take a prisoner. They'd put a chain on one hand, chain him to a guard. For Peter, it was two. Guard on one side, guard on the other, chained to him. In addition to that, centuries uh, these, were, these were squads of four soldiers that at all times there were at least four soldiers immediately around Peter to make sure he didn't escape. In addition to that, they had uh, kind of a rotation system. So there were 16 soldiers that that night were responsible for Peter. Can you imagine? The plan was what? The following day was going to be his execution day. So we can say his death was imminent. Isn't it interesting to see what Peter was doing that night? What was he doing? Sleeping. Sleeping. 
Now, Paul later, we see Paul, he liked whenever he got put in prison, he liked to sing. But Peter, he liked to sleep. How many of y'all like to sleep? Anyway, he, he just was, he obviously had the peace of God. I mean, it was like chill, you know? I mean, I, you know, I think I would be up fretting, worrying, thinking, you know, calling out, crying out for help or something. Peter, he's sleeping. In fact, he was sleeping so solid that the angel could hardly get him awake out of his sleep. But I want you to understand the seriousness of this moment and how that the church is literally in the midst of a crisis. Now, let's go to number two. How did the church respond? Well, we see in verse five. Boy, that's the critical verse. It says, so Peter was kept in prison. Why did I ask you to circle the word so? Because that's the backdrop. Because Peter was in prison, the next part, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So whenever you see the word but, there's usually a contrast going on. So, in other words, because Peter was in prison, because his death was imminent, because the persecution had reached such a pinnacle height, now it says what? But, everybody say but. But, but the church was earnestly, constantly praying for Peter. They were praying to God for him. Now, there's a lot of things we need to emphasize here, and I think we can learn a lot about the power of prayer and how the church should respond to crisis in prayer by just this simple verse. But let me start by just explaining the one word there that in this NIV translation is the word earnestly. Some translations it'll say, but the church was constantly in prayer for him. Some will use the word fervently. So this is an interesting original Greek word, ektonos, which, uh, which the word fervent is a pretty good interpretation. The word in English, the word fervent in English means hot or something that's boiling over, something that is intense. And uh, it, it suggests to us something that is zealous or pa intensely passionate or glowing like burning coals. So that's the sense of feeling about this word. The word ektenos in the original Greek language literally means stretching out, like stretching out like a runner would stretch out far to reach the finish line with every ounce of energy that they might have. It was also a medical term used to describe muscles that were stretched beyond their normal capacity and beyond a, with a degree of intensity. Uh, it had to do with the stretching of a muscle to its limits. You know, really what was happening here is the church was stretching their prayer muscles. Yeah, they were praying with great intensity that day. And so that teaches us a whole lot about really what's going on. Actually, it's the same Greek word, ektenos. It's the same Greek word used when it's describing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When we can remember the level of agony, the level of intensity that's going on with Jesus. He's in the garden. He's wrestling with God's will for his life, right? Lord, I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. But boy, I'm having a struggle. In his humanity, he was struggling. 
but he was stretched out in prayer. Now, the disciples were sleeping, but Jesus was praying. And he was praying with great intensity. You see, the church possesses the keys that can unlock even prison doors. The keys to your particular crisis. So we see so much here about the power of prayer. I was thinking about a story that might be helpful for us before we look at the different aspects of the way that they prayed. It's a story taken from the life of Martin Luther the Reformer. Way back in 1540, Martin Luther is said to have had a friend, one of his best friends and one of his ministry associates, who was named Frederick Myconius. Frederick Myconius was very, very sick and at the point of death and was expected to die in a short time. He wrote a letter and had the letter immediately sent off to Martin Luther. And uh, from his bed, he wrote this very tender farewell letter to his friend and his ministry associate. History tells us that when Martin Luther received the letter, he immediately sent back his reply. Listen to his reply. It's quite bold. Martin Luther writes this back. He said, I command you in the name of God to live and not die. Because I still need you in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never allow me to hear that you are dead, but will permit me to work with you and I will actually survive you. For this, he said, I am praying. He said, this is my will. He said, it was God's will. <laughs> he said, this is my will, and may my will be done because I seek only to glorify the name of the Lord. In other words, if I'm absolutely 100% committed to doing the will of God and glorifying Him, and I know that I need you, then God's going to hear this prayer. He was praying how? Earnestly, passionately praying for his friend. Did you know that from that day on, Frederick Myconius began to improve, got his strength back, was off his deathbed, and continued the ministry? Myconius lived six more years after that moment and died six months after Martin Luther. His prayers were answered. What kind of prayers does the church need to learn to pray? What kind of prayers when we face crises in our lives? Because all of you have faced crises. Someone say amen. All of you have faced challenging moments and times, whether it be a loss or whether it be a lack or whether it be facing a mountain of problems that you're not sure how you're going to get through. We all face different kinds of crises. How should we pray when we're facing this? In this case, we see, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. How should we pray? Let me offer to you four specific kinds of praying that are implied in this verse. First of all, praying with passion. This idea of earnest praying suggested the, the, the word passion. It was urgent praying. Why? Because they knew that tomorrow their leader was going to die. 
That'll stir up your urgency, won't it? When you know that your bill is due tomorrow, you're going to pray hard today. Am I right? You don't say, well, a couple weeks, I'll really get serious praying. No, when you know that the deadline is tomorrow, you're going to pray with great level of urgency. There's something deep. There's something deep inside of you that passionately. Sometimes I hear people pray religious prayers that have no passion. I hear people pray and make sure they're concerned about using big words or religious sounding words. Or, oh, dear God. Listen, folks, sometimes you just need to forget all that and just say, God, I need help in the midst of this crisis. He wants you to pray with passion. He wants you to pray with urgency. I found that some people get a little bit, they get a little nervous when they're around someone praying with passion. Number two, it needs to be prayed with perseverance. Perseverance means the word earnestly. Literally there, it's, and it says, uh, it's translated in some versions, the, the church prayed constantly. It's the idea of intensity, but it's also the idea of continuity. The prayers were moving on. The prayers were never giving up. They were committed to praying. Did you know that it, all it takes is a really look at the, at the scriptures here, and you know what I can conclude? How many days they have been doing this? 24-7 for eight days because of the timing of the festival that they were that he was in prison for so he had been in prison for eight days and i'm assuming that that church had been gathered together in in mary's house 24 7 likely for eight days how many of you would say that's persevering in prayer that's not giving up in your prayer life. How do you know it's easy when you don't have instant answers? We live in an instant society where we expect everything just like that. We expect everything to be microwavable. We expect everything to be instantaneous. And if we, and if we can't get it immediately on our, on our smart device, we get upset. It's not the same way in prayer. We need to understand that prayer includes not only praying with urgency, but also never giving up. Did you know way back in the 1700s that there was a group of people in Hernhut, Germany that had got together as a result of a move of God upon a man's heart? And they began together. Very small groups started. They began to pray every day. When they started praying, they dedicated themselves to pray, ironically, for missionaries. God put a special heart in these Germans to pray for world missions, for the world to come to know Jesus Christ. And they began to pray. Did you know that history tells us that out of that came a movement, by the way, it's called the Moravian Movement. The Moravians, there's some different cloisters of Moravians, particularly even now down in uh, North Carolina, and some of you are familiar with that. The Moravian Movement happened as a result of that prayer meeting. Did you know that that prayer meeting went on 24-7, they did it in shifts, 24-7, for 100 years straight, with no stop. 100 years of nonstop praying a group of people who just had it in their heart to make a difference. Sometimes we don't realize what an impact we can have on things around the world. Literally, missions was supported globally for that hundred years of faithful praying because 
of those Moravians. We need to pray with perseverance. Sometimes I, I know many of you, I know some of your stories, and we have situations, we have prodigals, we have sons and daughters and uncles and aunts and parents who are not Christians, are not following the Lord, and we're praying. You say, well, how long you been praying? I've been praying five years. I've been praying 40 years. I've been, listen, whatever it takes, pray without giving up and pray with intensity. Number three, they prayed in agreement. You say, well, how do you know that? Because the church was gathered together praying. This was not, you know, there's something to be said for your individual private prayers. God bless you. You need to be doing that. All of us need our private personal prayer time. But this was different. This was a crisis facing not just one of the members of the church. This was a crisis facing the whole church. It was their leader who was in prison and was getting ready to get killed. There's private prayer and there's corporate prayer. Corporate prayer is when multiple numbers of believers come together and agree on something in prayer. In this case, we don't know how many people, but it wasn't the whole church of Jerusalem because there were thousands in the church in Jerusalem. This was simply one group of people gathered together in one person's house and maybe it was a different people for different days, but they had been praying. And they were praying in agreement. See, when you come together and corporately you pray, what you have to do is find common, commonality. You have to have the single-mindedness single to get in harmony with one another. Uh, when we first started, we have corporate prayer on Tuesday nights. Every Tuesday night in the annex, we gather together. Anybody who wants to come, we come together and we pray. But it's not a prayer meeting where everybody just pray. You just go away over here and do your thing and do their thing. The idea is to harmonize our prayers and to find out what is God wanting us to pray. And then everybody is coming into agreement on that prayer topic and how we're praying. That's where great power is released when we can corporately unite our hearts in prayer and see things done. In fact, did you know that that's what brought the day of Pentecost? Was because there was 120 people who had gathered together in the upper room. They had prayed. They didn't even know exactly what they're praying for. They just know they had a promise from God to wait until something came to them from heaven. And they prayed. 120 people. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And those people prayed for 10 days. They prayed until God opened up heaven, poured out the Holy Spirit, and filled them all with the power of God and supernatural signs and wonders. Why? As my friend Jack Taylor once said, he said, the miracle of Pentecost wasn't so much that there was the speaking in tongues. The miracle is that you could get 120 people in harmony. Getting 120 people to agree in prayer on something, that's miraculous. Amen? Do you know it's interesting? You know the scripture in Matthew 18, 19 that says, wherever two people agree as to touching something here on earth, that it will be done by my Father in heaven. Y'all familiar with that verse? Did you know that the word agree there is a very important word? It comes from a word that actually means in the original Greek language, symphony. A symphony is where you have different instruments playing different parts, but they all harmonize together and it sounds beautiful. When you can get two people who are 
get their hearts, their relationships, their community, their fellowship knit together where they love one another. They're of one heart, one mind. They're not doing their thing. You're doing your thing, but we're connected. You get that kind of a person to pray with you, and you release amazing power in prayer. That's why the marriage, the prayer of agreement of a married couple is one of the most powerful things on the planet today. The prayer of agreement of a local church that can harmonize on a particular matter is powerful today, and that's what we see in Acts chapter 12. These are people who had been meeting together. These are people who were in fellowship with one another. These are people who knew each other. These are people who said, we're going to agree. What were they in agreement on? Very clearly, one thing. Get Peter out of prison. That's what they're praying on. They weren't praying for Aunt Susie in that prayer meeting. They weren't praying for a new building. They're praying for the release of Peter. It was a prayer of agreement. It was also a prayer of intercession. Intercession is when it, there are different kinds of prayer. The prayer of intercession is when someone is praying, standing in the gap between God who has the answer and this that has the need, whether it's a person or a nation or a community or an organization. Those who stand in the middle, and God says he's searching for a man, someone who will stand in the gap, right? That is called intercessory prayer. Some of y'all, oh yeah, I've heard about intercessory prayer. Listen, not everybody is called to be an intercessor, but everybody's called to intercede. There is the calling to be an intercessory prayer warrior. There are special people with that calling. I admire it greatly, but I don't have that gift. But I sure want to know some intercessors. I want to make sure I got their names. I want to make sure that I've got them praying for me. But all of us can intercede. All of us can stand in the gap, just like the church did here in Acts chapter 12. They stood in the middle in the, between God, who could answer prayer, and Herod and his plans for Peter. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 and 27 describe what it means for us to pray as people who are interceding. All right, so let's go to the last two points and we'll wrap up today. So we see that we have a church that's in crisis, then we have a church that prays, and number three, what do we see? Circumstances got changed. Things changed. Why did they change? Why did they change? Because of the prayer. The prayer and the type of praying that these people did changed the situation. So we, we, uh, we see clearly the circumstances were changed, and I don't need to review the miraculous deliverance that took place. Uh, you might want to call it the great escape because it was amazing. With that angel, the angel of the Lord showing up and, and knowing exactly where Peter was, he was in the heart of that dungeon of that prison, going there awake, had to wake him up, poke him in the side, wake him up. Peter's in a daze. He doesn't know what's going on. And, uh, you know, the chains supernaturally just fell off of his wrist. I mean, there's, I, I hadn't even stopped to count the number of miracles in that little part of the story. Chains fell off, and then the angel and Peter just, he said, well, go ahead and get dressed. I often thought it's interesting that out of all the, all the supernatural things there, he's still asking to get his clothes on. <laughs> interesting. That's just the crazy things I think about when I'm reading the Bible. I'm like, well, everything else happened supernaturally, but he still wanted him to put his sandals on. Anyway, anyway so he got him dressed, and they walked out, and it was just like, walked right in front of the guards, and guards never saw him. 
Walked all the way out of the prison. Nobody stopped him. Walked all the way up to the city gates that were made not of wood, but of iron. And guess what? You walk up to doors today, you and I are used to automatic doors. Not back then. Can you imagine those iron doors? They just walked right through it, walked right on to, to the street. All of a sudden, the angel, the angel disappears. Peter's like, I thought I was having a dream. And he realizes, I've been delivered. Hallelujah. Isn't it interesting the next thing that he did? He immediately said, I know that there's some people down the street here. Mary lives close by. I know where they are meeting. And I bet that they're there tonight praying for me. He didn't have intimate knowledge probably of it, but he knew exactly what was going on. And he knew it was God who delivered him. And he knew that was the angel of the Lord that got him out of there. And he went straight to give a report. Isn't that great? I remember real quickly before I give you number four. Um, I remember of a situation that happened not too long ago that's still very fresh in my memory. Uh, Carrie and I were in Houston doing a wedding. And uh, we were on the way back out of town. We had a, a, a car that we had rented during those, that weekend. And we had uh, pulled into a, a local restaurant real close to the airport on the way to leave. And um, pulled to the restaurant, and there was a security guard at the restaurant. It was a big, you know, uh, open parking lot, lots of cars there. We pulled up and went inside to eat. And um, wasn't, we were then inside maybe 30, 40 minutes, came back out. And uh, the back window of the car had been totally smashed. And you could see glass everywhere. Y'all been in those situations where you go, oh, this couldn't be my car. I look around, oh my gosh, honey, this is our car. This is, this is our rental. <laughs> and someone had uh, smashed and grabbed. We had inadvertently left a small bag. No, let me refrain that because Carrie will correct me at home. I inadvertently. <laughs> Let's be really clear here, all right? I will pay the price this afternoon if I don't get this right, all right? I left a little bag in the back seat as we went in and, uh, to have lunch. And that little bag was important because not only did it have my laptop in it and some electronics in it, but it had some very sensitive identification information in it, passports and credit cards and all kind of stuff, okay? And I'm, I'm like, I can, I can replace the, what's on the laptop, but I'm, Lord, you're going to need to do something about getting this back there. We waited for hours and got the police report and all the stuff and got home. They, you know, they're like, well, you can, the police said, well, you can forget that. You will never, ever see it, hear about it. Just, just chalk it up. And we're like, well, I didn't say it to him, but I'm thinking, yeah, but God. You know, back on verse 5, but God. But someone's praying. So I remember praying, and we're just like, Lord, you're just going to, you know, we give it to you. You're not going to be upset about it and just trust you with it. We got on the plane, got back home. Within one week, I got a telephone call. It was a businessman from Houston, Texas. He's a contractor, and he said, uh, I, I'm looking for, gave my name, and he said, uh, I have a business card here, sir. Can you make sure? And he wanted to verify my identity. And he said, uh, let me tell you what happened. He said, I have crews, construction crews, and they're all over the city. And he said, uh, I'm actually from a different part of Houston. He said, but I had a crew that was traveling in Houston, 
and they were traveling down Interstate 45, and they happened to see this bag that was in the median. You're talking, you know, four lanes on each side, right? They saw this median, and they pulled over and decided to go and get pick up this little bag out of the median, and they brought it here to the office. And he said, and uh, my assistant opened it up and poured through it, and we found your you know, some business cards in there and some other things that are personal. And uh, I kind of think you probably had a, a computer in there. Am I right? Uh, yes, sir. And he said, uh, he said, well, he said, I'm not sure what's gone and what's there. He said, but I'd be happy to ship this to you. He packaged that up, sent the whole bag, the whole bag in its entirety, shipped back here with everything in it except for the laptop. Every, every sensitive item of information that was in there. And I thought, you know, isn't that just amazing that they would even think, and, and you can imagine what they're doing. They smashed and grabbed, grabbed that thing, pulled that laptop, and <laughs> tossed the bag out the window. But the fact that it was seen, the fact that there was someone willing to be responsible, someone willing to pull over, so you could go through all the parts of it. I knew it was simple. I had prayed. And that's what happens when God's people pray. Number four, and the last point that we'll make, is the church was surprised. The church got surprised. I was a little surprised when I got my bag back. Here we have in the end of the story, we see what? We see Peter going to the house where the church was meeting. He started knocking on the gate outside. The servant girl came out. Her name was Rhoda. By the way, the name Rhoda literally means rose. And that was a fragrant moment, I promise you. So Rose is out there. She's listening. She hears Peter's voice. She heard him knocking on it. She never opened up. She never saw him. She just heard his voice. <gasps> That's Peter's voice. She ran inside, tell the rest of the prayer meeting, Peter's outside, Peter's outside. Oh, get out of here. Rhoda, come on. You're always joking with us. Rhoda, come on here. They didn't believe her. I don't know what, how long it took. Peter just kept knocking, screaming and yelling, knocking. Finally, they went back, opened the door. Sure enough, it was Peter. And can you imagine the celebration they had that night? The next morning, he was supposed to be killed. The church was surprised. Now, let me just make a point here. It's important because it immediately raises kind of a theological question. It is apparent that that church was praying hard, praying with passion, praying in agreement, praying, doing their job, and there was one significant element missing. Expectancy. The fact that they were surprised, shocked, that God would actually hear their prayers? You say, well, I thought God just answers prayers of faith. God does what God's going to do. I can't explain to you even the mystery of the providence of why James was beheaded, why James was killed and Peter's delivered. I'm certain they were praying for James too. I can't explain that to you. But what I can tell you is, not only do we need to pray the way that this church did, but if you can add some expectancy to it, it'll not do you any harm, I promise you that. 
We need to pray believing. This story ought to, I, I have a feeling after this prayer incident in Acts chapter 12, how many of you think the, prayer, the, the prayers of the church actually got better? They, they started praying with more faith. I believe that. I believe that their expectation, well, if God did it with us for Peter, he can do it again. He can do it again. So add to the others some expectation. What a wonderful story of what happens when God's people pray. Would you stand to your feet with me? I'm going to ask that our prayer teams would come forward, and they're going to help me minister here as we wrap up. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to ask you to evaluate your own mind and heart and life and say, am I facing a crisis or a need where there's a need for breakthrough in my life? If you have some need for breakthrough, it doesn't matter what area of life. You're still like, I need God. And some of you who are watching online are like, I need that right now. We want to pray for you. And here's how I'd like to do it. If you're here this morning, you're like, I have a, a, a critical need for breakthrough in my life. And I want to be included in this final prayer because we're going to pray together corporately just like they did in Acts chapter 12. And if, that, if you have a situation like that, would you just raise your hand right now and say, I have one of those in my life right now. Just raise your hand. All right, so there's half a dozen to a dozen people here in the building with that. Do you mind just walking to the front so that we can be very focused upon you? If you'll walk to the front and just face me, we're just going to pray together. And the prayer teams are here. They're going to be in agreement with you. And, and after we pray corporately for you and agree in prayer, you're welcome to go individually. And anybody can come up for decisions or to have these couples pray with you, that'll be just fine. Come on forward. Make a little room here for everybody. Come on together. And those of you who are watching online, you just, you just step out right where you're at. If you're driving, don't move. Just keep driving. But. All right, so we're going to pray. The early church prayed and stuff happened. Am I right? So do we have the same God? Is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? If he was big enough to get Peter out of prison, yeah. is he big enough to answer their prayers? Yeah. All right. So I can't promise you an angel. We're going to pray, though, all right? Here we go. We're going to pray. Just pray. Stretch your hands towards them, and let's just pray for them. Take 15, 20 seconds. Just lift your voice. Be passionate. Be in agreement. You are now called to intercede for them, and I'll close us with prayer. Lord, we're gathered together as a church in agreement today. We're praying for these needs, individuals and marriages and families and situations that we don't know about, but Lord, you know about them. You know intimately about them, and we know that you hear our prayers. We know that if we pray according to your will, that you hear us and you act upon our requests and petitions. So today, Father, for every person who is standing here today in some particular need, we pray, we stand, we say, regardless of their Christ, but the church is making earnest prayer for them today. Father, we're praying for answers. <clears throat> we pray for provision. We pray for salvations. We pray for answers. We pray for jobs. We pray for relationships. Whatever the situation is, Lord, we're standing in the gap today as we pray for them. We're expecting and believing, Lord, do whatever is necessary to intervene 
into their life and situations. We pray this today in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Can we just give the Lord a hand clap? Thank him for that. I'm going to let Brad come and just release you with a blessing and a benediction of just blessing upon your life. And uh, if you still have need for personal ministry and prayer, these teams will be available. Saints in Christ Jesus, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom, both now and forevermore in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You are loved. You are arrows in his hand. Go forth and be his blessing to everyone you come into contact with, believer and non-believer alike. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you.